The scripture passage today is from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. We're in the middle of a series exploring how the resurrection of Jesus provides tangible hope for our lives here and now, not just after death. And we've been exploring how a small, misshapen gospel, you think of those three words, manger, cross, crown, incarnation, atonement, resurrection. If, if, if those ideas are small in our lives, or if they're misshapen, where we've emphasized one to the detriment of the other, our Christian expression, our lives become equally distorted in kind of predictable ways. And this series specifically is looking at what does it look like when we grow in our understanding and our application of Jesus' resurrection, that crown dimension, which tends to get relevated, uh, relegated to maybe one day of the year, and maybe a few days around Easter. But it's really important to every year steep in the implications of the resurrection. And today we come to a massively critical topic for everybody in this room, and that is how does the resurrection of Jesus change our understanding of our bodies and how we're to express our bodies in terms of our sexuality? First, I want to give some context to this passage, 1 Corinthians 6. Um, we talked last week about the overlap of the ages, how we as Christians live in the in-between, where this present age ruled by sin and death is coming to an end, but the kingdom of God is being established and breaking in at the same time. Paul uses that truth to frame almost all of his arguments in the first part of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is a book written predominantly to most, uh, most people were not Christians, they were pagans, and they became Christians, and so they had very little what we consider biblical literacy or Bible knowledge in terms of uh, the Jewish Old Testament. And Paul was saying, okay, this is where we now find ourselves. You used to be part of the pattern of this world, the pattern of people who lived as if there was no God or we don't need to be accountable to God. But now in in light of the fact that Jesus has come, 
was crucified for us and has been resurrected and God's new age is breaking in. This is how you should live. Listen to what he says. He's making all these very practical instructions about marriage and sexuality and finances and don't have lawsuits amongst one another. And in 1 Corinthians 7, he gives us the reason for that. He says, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those of you who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. And listen to this line. He says, for this world in its present form is passing away. Paul uses this uh, picture of an overlap of the ages to say, you now have to do a 180 in terms of how you've been living. The resurrection... the resurrection causes you to reverse engineer your entire life. If new heavens and new earth is my future, if God's kingdom is breaking in now, which means the patterns that are kind of come naturally and normal to sinful human beings, and all that comes, all the trappings that come with that are, are being slowly put to death by the establishment of God's kingdom, then I should be living into God's new reality. I should be living into God's new age, not the old age. Why would I want to be a part of something that is going towards a dead end? I want to be part of something that's going to continue forever. So Paul says the time is short. This world in its present form is passing away. One author I read this week said, living in light of the resurrection means living in light of the overlap of the ages. While we're in the overlap of the two ages, through the Spirit we have a foretaste of the future, and a taste of our future love, and a taste of our future grace, and the taste of that future now radically frees us in this world from the things of this world. Now, when I say world, don't think creation. The Bible uses the term creation to refer to all that God has created. The Bible uses the term world to refer to sinful patterns and how that creation is used in anti-God ways. So when this person says, we're freed uh, from the things of this world, it's we're free to move into this creation and into um, reality, not using the things of this world in a way that's destructive. We're free now to use them the way God intended us to use them. One of the areas in which Jesus' resurrection absolutely sent shockwaves through the ancient world was how Paul and the early Christians connected Jesus' resurrection to their understanding of the body and sexuality. I know last week's sermon was a little heady, and this one's going to be a little heady too, but just for like two more minutes, and then we'll, we'll, it'll, we'll, I'll release the tension a little bit. Let's talk about philosophy for a second. Let's talk about Plato. Anyone know who Plato is? Not Play-Doh, Plato with a T, famous Greek philosopher, some would argue one of the most influential minds in human history, I would say probably top five. This was the assumed worldview This is the operating system that everybody just consciously presumed the way the world was if you were non-Jewish, if you were a Gentile, in the first century. There are realities made up of two worlds, dual. It's called a dualism. A higher world and a lower world. The soul is connected to the higher world. The higher world is that which is eternal, that which is true, that which is invisible but incorruptible. And the body is a part of the lower realm, the material realm, the realm that is constantly in decay. It's imperfect. It's inferior. Dualism had a very predictable, in almost every pagan culture, has a very predictable pattern even to today, 
way of understanding the body and sexuality. Dualism, this might seem very conceptual, the fact that you can split reality into a higher, lower, uh, you know, mind-body distinction, and there's a real line in between. This, the higher is good, the lower is bad or evil, or at least lesser. But this has very predictable views, leads to very predictable views of the human body and sexuality. The first view is this. Your body, because it's part of the lower world of matter, it's not eternal, it's, uh, it's decaying, and therefore it's simply just a lower debased collection of appetites and desires. And so at the end of the day, you can kind of do whatever you want with your body because what really matters is your soul. Your soul is what's going to live on forever. So what you do with your body here and now is of secondary consequence. What you need to do is protect and uh, nurture the health of your soul. So that's one way um, Gentiles tended to think about their body and sexuality. The second view is your body, because it's uh, connected to a lower, maybe more debased, inferior um, realm. Yes, it's a collection of appetites, but that means that if you participate in things of the body, you're implicitly demeaning yourself. You're implicitly corrupting yourself because bodily activity and certainly sex, uh, sex is a lower, inferior, less noble pursuit. And so to do those things is to debase oneself. So the noble and the true and the righteous path, they wouldn't have used the language of holy, but um, the enlightened way is to suppress and push away and minimize participation in the things of the body and instead focus your attention on being absorbed in the things of the mind. This is why Plato famously said, only philosophers should be kings. Because a philosopher has trained himself to be absorbed primarily in the realm of ideas. A philosopher isn't polluted by lower um, temptations and desires of the body and of physicality. He's transcended that. They've become enlightened. So, I hope you can see that this dualistic view of the mind and body sets up a lose-lose paradigm as it relates to our bodies and our sexuality. So if you're dualistic, you kind of have one of two views of sex. Number one, sex is just a collection of appetites and um, desires. Again, it's, your body's yours to do with what you want. Use it. But just, you know, just recognize that what matters is your heart. Spiritual formation, spiritual growth is about what you do in your spiritual life, which is understood to be up and far away and detached from your body. Um, your body is just kind of a prison house for the soul. Your body is corrupted, and it's, um, it's fading away. And so as long as you nurture a deep spiritual life, what you do with your body will have little or no connection in your life. What matters is what you do with your soul. Like hunger or thirst, sex is just a natural desire. Your body has natural desires. Feed it. Move on. It's not a big deal. The second lose paradigm that can come out of this is, again, sex is a lower debased appetite. To satisfy sexual desires is actually to debase and demean yourself. And so spiritual growth is going to look like minimizing activities of the body and instead focusing on activities of the mind and the soul. And here's how you know. Here's the tip. Here's, here's the, the tip of the hand that shows you that dualism is still massively pervasive today. 
that Plato's idea, his fundamental way of conceiving the nature of reality, is still absolutely alive and presumed by many people, is that both of those views are alive and active today. That first view is the secular humanist view. My body's my own. It's a collection of appetites. No one has a right to tell me what I can do or not with my body. My natural desires are inherently good because they're natural. So any attempt to restrain or to restrict the natural impulses of my body is oppressive and it leads to sexual repression. Sex isn't actually a big deal. It's just a physical act. So just be responsible in your use of it. And again, then you can still, in addition to using your body sexually in whatever way you want, as long as you're responsible, what's, what's really important is actually just nurturing your spiritual life over here. So that's the secular humanist view. The second view is kind of the conservative fundamental religious view that it it takes root in a lot of churches. Sex is kind of a qualified good. I mean, it leads to kids and might be some other circumstances where it's kind of of uncomfortable to talk about it as a gift from God maybe, but uh, maybe it is. But it is, it feels like it's kind of rooted in something lower and something lesser and something unspiritual, something dirty, sex, and our body seems to be rooted in wrong or lower impulses. And so I guess if I'm really serious about spiritual growth, what that will mean is I'm continually putting to death these desires in my life and instead focusing on spiritual things. And what I want to make very clear this morning is that both of those views, the secular humanist view and the... um, kind of conservative, what you might think of as conservative religious view of bodies and sexualities, both are harmful, both are actually dehumanizing, I would argue, and both are completely unbiblical. But within the pagan world, and I would argue within our world too, if you do not have an understanding of the resurrection, those are about the only two views practically where you're going to land as it relates to the body. The resurrection gave first century Christians, and I think it's the only thing powerful enough to give people today, an opportunity for a third way, for a different way, beyond just don't worry about the body, worry about your soul, use your body for whatever you need, or to participate in sexuality is a lower, demeaning, debasing thing. The resurrection was a game changer in terms of people's understanding of the dignity of the body, the dignity of their sexuality, and what it meant to use the body and sexuality to the glory of God. There was no categories before the resurrection and before the early church writings for how to use the body within a narrative that was tremendously optimistic and hopeful. If Jesus has been raised bodily from the dead and he's been enthroned as king over heaven and earth, and that means God is working to restore and redeem all areas of life, like Colossians says, all things being brought under the lordship of Jesus, hope, reconciliation, new life, renewal of life, then the early church, and Paul writing here is saying, that includes the sphere of our bodies and our sexuality. Our bodies and sexualities are good things, which were created by God, corrupted because of sin, but now we're being redeemed in Christ. And that means our bodies and our sexuality find a way better story that a dualistic framework can offer. Our bodies and sexualities are fundamentally good. God created all things in Genesis 1 and 2. Remember, the story of the whole Bible starts with a naked man 
a naked woman in a garden, God presiding over it and saying, be fruitful and multiply. There's no shame. There's no hesitation. There's no embarrassment. Bodies and sexualities are an integral, God-glorifying aspect of what it means to be human and what it means to be a faithful human in God's world. But Genesis 3, shame enters in terms of our understanding of the body with the fall of man, with sin corrupting us, and, and then we just see, that as a scriptural witness unfolds, all kinds of abuses and misuses of both the body and sexuality, but God is redeeming all things. Just our souls to be up in heaven forever? No. All things. Our body's sexuality moving towards what? A disembodied state in heaven forever? Nope. Revelation 21, a new heavens and a new earth. Heaven comes down, reestablishes itself here, and a kingdom that knows no end and is physical and glorious and beautiful and pleasurable and in which there is no pain or sickness or death gets established for all eternity. So Corinthians is a book that gives us an insider's look into a community that is kind of learning this for the first time and saying, we have had, I mean, Paul is blowing their socks off because he's just rearranging their imagination in terms of what is possible in light of the resurrection. Let's start with verse 12. We're just going to work through this passage, and I think this has something for everybody in this room. I have a right to do anything, you say, but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. See, Paul immediately confronts one of the central sins the church presumes, and he quotes this mantra, which is kind of in the zeitgeist of the Corinthian culture and has made its way into the church. My body's mine to do what I want with, like... No one has the right to tell me what to do. Uh, I, I can do whatever I want. I'm, I'm the owner of my body. This is me. I have jurisdiction over this, so no one else can tell me how to live. And Paul wants to take that idea, that assertion of, I have the right to do anything, and he kind of gently, he doesn't even directly confront it, he just kind of comes in through the side door and says, is that really actually true? Is that true? And I think this is interesting because this verse alone shows us that individual autonomy, no one has the right to tell me how to live. That wasn't, that's not just like a 21st century phenomenon. That's been there right from the start. Paul says, okay, I'm going to give you a little bit of, I'm going to give you a little bit of line. Let's say you do have the right to do anything. Surely you're not just going to do something because you have the right to do it if it isn't beneficial. Yeah, you have the right to ingest poison into your body. But why would you do that though? And uh, you certainly have the right to walk into a police station and say, I want you to arrest me. I want you to put cuffs on me. I want you to imprison me for the rest of my life. But why would you do that? Why would you purposely put yourself in a place of enslavement? So Paul is just kind of wisely and in a really interesting way kind of pushing back on their presumed rationale. See, what Paul is going to get to later in the passage, we'll come to it, is he says, actually, you don't have a right to do whatever you want. He says, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Jesus has been raised and enthroned as king. He is now Lord and master. And if you've bent the knee to him, what you've done is you've said, my life is yours, not my spiritual life, but then I get to do whatever I want with my body and my money and anything else. It's not dualism. Christianity isn't a dualism. It's all or nothing. And Paul is saying, if you've given your life over to Jesus, or if you've given your heart over to Jesus, which can be sometimes understood dualistically, Paul's saying, no, 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 this is like a marriage. You're all in with Jesus. So you don't have a right 
The reason why we call Jesus not just Savior, but Lord, is because he is in command of what? Other Christians, but not me? No, me. He has the right to now tell me how to live, including how to express and use my body and my sexuality. Jesus is calling the shots. Yes, you're empowered, Paul says. The Spirit has been poured out. We're in mission for Jesus. God has um, sent you and, and uh, through his Spirit empowered you into freedom in Christ. But that freedom isn't freedom to do whatever you want. And it's certainly not freedom to press your rights and to press what seems right to you in your own eyes. That's not the freedom that we've been given in Christ. We've been given freedom to serve and love God and to serve and love our neighbors. Then he quotes another famous saying from the time, and he says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Right? This is that view that says sex is just an appetite. You have a stomach, it gets hungry, you feed it, no big deal. God's going to destroy them both anything. Anyways, body doesn't really matter. What matters is your soul. And the Corinthians are kind of like, hey, I guess it's kind of the same. Like sex is an appetite. You, it's a physical act. You satisfy yourself on that level. And, and as long as you're, again, just growing spiritually in your spiritual life over here, then that's fine. And Paul says, no, no, no. He says he completely undercuts that idea. He completely undercuts a dualistic understanding of, of, of reality. He says, no, no, no. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. It's meant for the Lord. And the Lord for the body By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Paul is saying, in light of the resurrection, you need to understand your body is for the glory of God. Again, very revolutionary in terms of an understanding. Because most pagan worldviews were like, the gods are interested in our soul or some part of us or our psyche. But what we do with our bodies, as long as it's consensual and respectful, then that's fine. Paul says, absolutely not. Christianity is all or nothing whole person devotion to Christ. And notice what Paul does. He says, he establishes that what you do with your body and your sexuality matter to God because of the resurrection. He says, it's not, the body isn't meant for sexual immorality. That phrase, sexual immorality, in the Greek is porneia, from which we get the word pornography. And it was a catchphrase to uh, signify any form of sexual intercourse or sex play outside of a covenantal marriage between man and woman. It was just a really quick and easy way to say, doesn't matter what the other contexts are or what the other factors are in the sexual activity, if it's happening outside of a committed covenantal relationship marriage between a man and a woman, then it's sexual immorality. It's porneia. It's against God's design, regardless of intention, regardless of other factors. Paul is saying, if Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, our bodies have a dignity and a purpose that comes from God, which has to cause us to rethink our entire lives. Our sexuality now has a dignity and a purpose through which we have to rethink. And to act as if what we do with our bodies is inconsequential or isn't a big deal is not true. Paul wants the earliest Christians to know what you do with your body, how you use your body, generally speaking, but specifically how you express your sexuality, is massively important to God. And it has huge ramifications for your entire life. It cannot be separated from what we might think of as our spiritual life. Our bodies are more than a collection of desires and appetites. They're a vehicle, Paul says, in light of the resurrection, through which we're to love God and serve other people. 
Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Why does Paul have to use the example of a believer having sex with a prostitute? Because believers were having sex with prostitutes in the first century. Because they were thinking, well, it's dualistic. I, this is the way I was raised. It's temple prostitution. It's not a big deal. Jesus is Lord of my life. Now he's Lord of this part of my life. But in these areas, I still have some habits and patterns that I don't particularly mind. And I'm forgiven in Christ, right? Like the cross, I'm forgiven. Praise the Lord. So I just get to keep doing the life that I, I'm, I'm used to doing. And Paul says, oh, no, no, absolutely not. The Christ has forgiven you your sins. Penalty of sin is done with. Now you get to walk in newness of life and move out of the power of sin. Why are you continuing in patterns that are enslaving you and bringing destruction? This is a huge idea that Paul points to here. It's kind of hidden in plain sight. You can read over this really quickly. But Paul says, sex is a covenant-making, whole-person activity. That's what Paul's alluding to here. He says, notice the major reason why he says all porneia, all sexual immorality, any sex outside of marriage is a sin. Because it creates a covenant when there is no intention to follow through on that covenant in any other area of life. He says in verse 16, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. That's hearkening back to Genesis. When God says, I gave Adam, Eve, and Eve, Adam, and the two will become one flesh. There's going to be a mysterious union, a covenantal union, which will fuse them into a new kind of life and sex uh, shared in intimacy and vulnerability between those two are, is going to be the vehicle, the primary vehicle through which that oneness of life emerges. Marriage and um, marriage, the marriage covenant is a symbol of God's covenant with all of creation. And Paul is helping us to understand that the sex act actually creates a covenant, which is a binding promise between two people. And notice that that's irrespective of intent. Paul says, if someone joins their body to a prostitute, they do become one in body. Not, well, if they were intending to, it happens. But if they were both going into it saying, this is just an exchange of money for sexual pleasure. I know what this is. You know what this is. It's not a big deal. We're just going to use our bodies in a certain way, satisfy urges, walk away, no harm, no foul. Paul says, no, you've completely misunderstood what just happened. You cannot disassociate your body from the rest of your life. You cannot enter into a sexual union and compartmentalize its effects. A covenant has been created. The two will become one. What we do with our bodies and our sexuality matters enormously because sex is a covenant-making act that shapes a person holistically. We even use the language the marriage isn't consummated until the first time the couple makes love. The marriage act isn't even legitimized until the sex act creates a covenant. And then within marriage, uh, part of the reason uh, that I think um, having a consistent, healthy sex life within marriage is important is because what you are communicating to your partner within marriage when you're having sex is, I'm renewing my covenant. I'm saying with my body as a symbol for my whole life, I am with you in this, I love you, I'm committed to you. So sex is a covenant renewal ceremony from within marriage. That's why it's so important. 
In Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, Paul uses actually, it's a, it's a very uh, graphic image, but he uses the sexual union between a husband and a wife as the metaphor for understanding Christ's relationship and passion for his church. He says in the best and most beautiful expression, think about how non-dualistic, think about how strange that would have sounded to people who would have associated any kind of bodily stuff with lower, unholy, unrighteous, unenlightened pursuit. Paul says actually in the sex act within a covenant where a man and a woman are vulnerable before each other and uh, in that uh, lovemaking activity, we get a glimpse. It's a dim hint, but we get a glimpse of Christ's love and passion for his people. Paul uses... um, the expression of sex as a metaphor to say this is in some small way the passionate love with which Christ loves us. And that's why he says, or the writer of Hebrews says in, in 13, uh, Hebrews 13.4, marriage should be honored by all. That's a command given to all Christians. We should honor marriage, where the culture demeans it, scoffs at it, uh, dismisses it, sees it as antiquated. We are to honor it. And the marriage bed is to be kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Sex is incredibly important to God because it points to something beyond just physical satisfaction. So Paul says in verse 18, flee all sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. And this is kind of the New Testament sexual ethic in a nutshell, stated in the negative. Flee all sexual immorality, all porneia. All expressions of sexual intercourse or sex play outside of a covenanted relationship between husband and wife. Any posture, sorry, our posture towards any other um, opportunities for sexual engagement or expressing our sexuality is meant to be a posture where we are ready to run away. Just like Joseph does with Potiphar's wife who tries to seduce him. He doesn't sit there and say, well, maybe we should work something out. Let's talk about this. There's probably lots of... He just runs. He gets out of there. We are to flee. When we're tempted to look at something we shouldn't online, we're to get out of the room. When we're tempted to have a conversation with a member of the opposite sex that is a little bit more intimate in nature and might lead to something, we, we, we run away. We flee. When we know there's an opportunity to go over to our boyfriend's house and there's not going to be supervision, we don't, we don't play with the dragon's tail. We flee. We go into a neutral public space. We are careful, and we flee from any opportunity. We don't even wait for the temptation to present itself. We get away as fast as possible. This is a theme that comes up again and again in Scripture. I know sometimes Christians and evangelical Christians and conservative Christians always get this bum rap because we're always talking about sex, and we are supposedly have this low view of the body, which is a total misunderstanding, the New Testament comes out of this high view of the body and a high view of sexuality. Paul says in Galatians, the act of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality and impurity and debauchery. Ephesians 5.3 says, among you, among the people of God, there's not even to be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or even of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Colossians 3.5 says, put to death kill it, crucify it, mortify it, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, and then he lists sexual immorality. Again, not our bodies, not our sexuality, but any expression of sexuality that can't be squared with, a, uh, with purity and with integrity and with moving towards a covenantal relationship, Paul says, that's not to be part of your life. Not because it's bad 
in, in a vacuum or just God doesn't want that because God wants you to have a restorative, healing, redemptive sexual union within the confines of a marriage. And as we, um, to the degree in which we enter into unhealthy, sexual, sexually immoral practices uh, before marriage, outside of marriage, um, we are just bringing destruction upon ourselves. It, it, it's never an innocent thing. It has massive consequences. There's lots of people in this room who could probably tell you of mistakes they've made sexually because they entered into those relationships or those situations with kind of a cavalier attitude because they didn't understand what was happening. They didn't understand the covenant-making nature of sex and how powerful it was. Not that it's bad, but um, sexuality is powerful. So we have to be careful how we channel it. You take an explosion, you channel it the right way, you've got an engine, you've got a car, makes your life way better. You have an explosion, you don't channel it, you've got a grenade. You'll kill yourself and other people around you. The Bible's witness is never that sex or the body are bad lower things. They're such good things, we have to be very, very careful how we use them. Verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God? Jesus has been resurrected. He poured out the Holy Spirit of heaven, the Shekinah glory. That used to be just reserved for the temple in Jerusalem. Now it's in you as God's people. That's the most dignifying thing you could ever imagine anybody saying about the body. This body, you are now... The way that you used to look and revere the temple because it was the place where heaven and earth met and where God chose to put his spirit, that's how you have to look at your body. And you have to, in that understanding, say, wait a second, this body and how I use it, I have to be very careful how I do it, and I need to understand that this is tremendously precious to God. This isn't a throwaway thing. This isn't just something that doesn't matter. This is, Wow. My body matters that much to God. God has decided to place his Shekinah glory in you. No other religion or worldview can compete with that view of the body or sexuality. I defy anybody in this room to find any religion or worldview that has as high a view of the body and sexuality as we even just see displayed in this text. And then Paul ends it with saying, again, this is the overall, this is the, this is the sexual New Testament ethic placed in the positive. In the negative, it's flee all sexual immorality. In the positive, it's this. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Honor God with your body. Your body is a vehicle and tool for new creation through which to love God and love and serve other people. Use it for those purposes. Don't use it to indulge in your freedom to do whatever you want, even if you have the right to do it. You, Paul says later on, I learned to um, beat my body and make it my slave so that through my body other people can find life. In light of the resurrection, how should we live? Honor God with our bodies. And that call is for everybody in this room, married or single, young or, uh, young or old. Christians are to courageously consider how to honor God with our bodies. In conclusion, five things, just as a summation, nothing new here, but this is a summation. Resurrection hope for the body and sexuality. Five things the Bible, I think, is very clear on. Number one, our bodies and our sexuality are a gift from God. Both have been corrupted by sin, absolutely, but both are arenas of God's redemption and restoration. Number two, all ideas that seek to undermine the inherent goodness of our bodies and sexuality or diminish their importance 
have to be rejected. Our bodies and our sexuality matter to God, and how they are used matters massively to God. Number three, what we do with our bodies matters enormously because sex is a covenant-making activity that comprehensively shapes a person. You can't compartmentalize the effects of a sexual union. So we have to be very, very careful and recognize that we have to use our bodies in a way that glorifies God. Number four, whether married or unmarried, Christians are called to courageously consider how to honor God with our bodies. You're going to talk about that in small groups this week. What do you think it looks like for someone who's single to honor God with their body? What does it look like for someone who's married to honor God with their body? Um, it, that's a pretty broad principle and broad, broad command. Paul is entrusting that the Spirit of God is going to enliven people's imaginations to say, I think that's what this looks like. That's important for us to be thinking about in our contexts. And number five, because our bodies and sexuality are an arena of God's redemptive work, a negative, destructive, abusive sexual history can absolutely be redeemed in Christ. The restoration of all things includes the restorations eventually of our bodies, but can even begin here and now in terms of our bodies and our sexuality. And so for those of us who have had a negative or destructive or abusive sexual history, that is not the end of the story. In Christ, there can be redemption or new hope. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Jesus submitted his body. He turned over his body, the torture and crucifixion, in order to secure your salvation. And so the worshipful response is to turn our lives, including our bodies, over to him and seek to use our bodies and to express our sexuality in a way that testifies to his grace, his love, his mercy, and his goodness. May he empower us to that task. Let's pray. God, as we continue to sing, we thank you for a revelation that um, dignifies our body and our sexuality in a world that is really struggling to understand how to do that in a way that's healthy, and yet you provide a way, God. Your path isn't always easy, God, but it is right, and it is good, and it leads to life and flourishing. May you... Um, Just impress one or two things from this message on each person's heart here, including my own. And um, through your spirit, as we seek you this week in prayer and worship, would we walk obediently? Would we flee sexual immorality where it's present in our lives, even if it's just in a tiny seed form? And would you empower us to honor you with our bodies? Would you activate our imagination, sanctify our imagination, so that that becomes a tremendous desire that we have. We long to honor you with our bodies, whether uh, single or married, young or old. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.